found myself this week uh, starting to uh, bemoan and whine about the weather. And uh, I was starting to complain to Kim, you know, driving on the roads, and oh no, you know, I said five more months, you know, of this. And, uh, and then I woke up this morning, and uh, there was a text uh, that I got from a dear friend in Cleveland, and uh, it, it's an inch of snow on his cars. <laughs> it, it, true, true story. You can check with your friends in Cleveland. And uh, he said to me, uh, he said, uh, May 15th in Cleveland, this is why you don't miss it. And, uh, and I thought, no, there's a lot of other reasons I don't miss it as well. But, but I was... Uh, Kind of thankful for that, you know, and, and in all seriousness, I, I know we're going into the uh, heat and all that, but as I say quite often, if this is the worst thing we experience this side of heaven, we're blessed. Amen? Amen, Amen to that. So uh, we're going to dive into his word right now, our, our Cactus Campus and Mountain Valley, and then our venue across campus and our chapel are joining us live as one congregation for our time in the word. So let's all bow together, and we're going to ask God to bless this time. Father... We are grateful for just all the blessings we have in you, uh, for Christ, for the Holy Spirit, for our families, Lord, for this country of ours. Uh, God, there's really, at the end of the day, we know no reason to whine. And so, God, we thank you for all that you are to us and all you have uh, given to us. And we pray, Lord, now that as we open your word, which arguably is one of the greatest gifts you've given to us, uh, aside from Christ, as we open your word, God, we pray that you might now speak to our minds and hearts. And uh, Lord, as the psalmist says, uh, let us be glad that we came to the house of God. And we pray this in Christ's name. And we all say together, amen. So if you ever uh, read books, and I think many of you do, you might uh, be familiar with a literary phrase called an excursus, an excursus, because we're going to take an excursus today. What is an excursus? It's defined by Webster's Dictionary as a digression that contains further exposition. So I love to read novels. If you're reading a novel and all of a sudden at one point in the novel, uh, the author kind of goes down a side trail of, say, describing a town or a room or something for like three pages at length, that could be called an excursus. Uh, the author is taking you down a side trail from the main trail to help you zone in on something. Uh, or an appendix in a book is a form of an excursus. It's, a, it's an addition to the main point, but helps you myopically focus on something that you need to focus on. It's called an excursus. It's a digression that contains further exposition. And we're going to engage in an excursus here at our church today. As many of you know, this spring here at Scottsdale Bible, we've been studying the Gospel of John, specifically chapters 7 through 11. And as we've been going through these chapters, we're about halfway through, we have been noting no less than 10 key traits that are needed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 10 things that we need to know so that we can become more fully devoted followers. So we've been looking at things like this, the fact that God gives us his revelation in Jesus, the fact that we need to be be thirsty, have clarity, be men and women of grace, have a life of closeness to God. And as Rustin talked about last week, even this idea of freedom, all things needed to be followers of Jesus Christ. But today, 
as we wrap up chapter 8 of John's gospel, it is time for an excursus, a digression that contains further exposition because the trail that John takes us down today does not contain necessarily another trait that's needed to follow Jesus. No, not at all. He's going to take us down a trail today that very simply but powerfully lays out who this Jesus is that we are following. And the closing verses of chapter 8 are all about Jesus's identity. They're about who he is and why it's so important that he is the one that we are following. And they are arguably some of the most important verses in all of John's gospel, if not all of the New Testament or the Bible as a whole. And I want to prepare you before we dive in, because we're going to dive in in about 20 seconds. I want to prepare you that we're going to dig deep here today. So I need you, if you ever have, to do your best to follow along closely, tune in with your mind and heart, and let's all try to understand the flow of these 12 verses that we're going to look at here because they give us a keen understanding of Christ, an understanding that can change our very lives. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk you through these 12 verses, noting some very important details as we do so that we can all understand what Jesus is getting at here. And then in a few minutes, we're going to put all this together by noting three profound implications of what Jesus is laying out here. So if you brought a Bible, I want you to turn to John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. They're the closing verses of John chapter 8. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. I'll put the scriptures up here on the monitor as we walk through it. And the only thing you need to know before we take our deep dive about the context here is this. And that is that Jesus is in the middle of a very tense discussion with the religious leaders of his day. I mean like really intense. And he's bantering back and forth with them about who he is and why he came to earth in the first place. And he's about to take them and by extension then us, to the mountaintop of insight and understanding of who he is. So picture the Gospel of John up to this point, all hiking up Mount Everest in their understanding of Jesus. We are now about to summit Mount Everest. We're just a few steps away from the mountaintop of understanding, and Jesus is going to take us these last few steps here in John chapter 8. And it all begins with the religious Jewish religious leaders taking the first shot at Jesus here, and look at how it starts in verse 48. It says, the Jews answered and said to him, Jesus, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> and guys, I got to tell you, this is a shot across the bow if there ever was one. This is a twofold insult in first century terms to Jesus. You see, Samaritans in that culture were considered half-breed Jews at best. They were Jews from the backwoods. They were Jews from the outlying areas. That's where Samaria was. And they were mostly non-Israelites by ancestry. They were converted to Judaism during the captivity days of four nations in the Old Testament. And so they weren't considered uh, by the Jerusalem Jews to be true red-blooded Jews. They were considered half-breeds at best. And because they had some strange views of the law, they were even considered heretics by many of the Jews. So it's certainly not a compliment when Jesus calls them, uh, or when they call Jesus a Samaritan. 
And when they further then accuse him of having a demon, this is just first century language for you're crazy. I mean, that's what they're saying there. Demon-possessed people in that culture didn't think in their right mind. They didn't say things that made sense. And so they're saying to Jesus, you're just absolutely nuts. And so add it all up here. No matter how you look at this, it's racist at best. It's character assassination at worst. That's the note that they begin on with Jesus here. And Jesus is going to respond. But he's not going to respond how maybe some of you would respond. Look at verses 49 to 51. Jesus answered and said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, this is a very interesting response, gang, that Jesus gives here. And things are obviously starting to heat up. And what I need you to see more than anything else is that, the, is that Jesus' first line of defense here is simply to put the burden of proof back on them. He says, you say I have a demon, I say that I don't. You say I'm crazy, I say I don't. He says, but you see, I'm really close with the Father, He's going to take them somewhere with that. I honor the Father, and you're dishonoring me. I do not seek my glory, but there is one who seeks and one who judges, and he's going to judge you guys real soon and show that you're wrong about me. And then Jesus drops the first bomb here. I put it in yellow when he says, if anyone then keeps my word, he will never see death. And and the reason that these words are so explosive, the reason I call them a bomb, is that in any good Jew's mind in the first century, they would have said, well, wait a second. The Old Testament says that we're to keep God's word and that if we keep God's word, then we have the best shot at eternal life. And yet you're saying here we need to keep your word to have eternal life. Sounds like you're equating yourself with God. (laughs) See, see, they're they're starting to to get what Jesus is is leading them toward here, and and they don't like it. And so the religious leaders are obviously going to jump all over that one. And so look at what happens now in verses 52 and 53. It says, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon, or now we know that you're crazy. Abraham died, and the prophets also And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And so what I need you to see here, because again, if you don't understand the Old Testament, some of this will be hazy to you. They are pulling their ace in the hole here. They're pulling what we're going to call the Abraham card. And what the Abraham card is all about is simply this, that in the Jew's mind in the first century, and for many Jews even still today, Abraham is the most significant Old Testament leader of them all. He was the founder of the entire nation Israel. He was the first of three patriarchs in the book of Genesis. He was the one who started the entire ball rolling. There was no greater character, no greater man of God for the Jews in Jesus' day than Abraham. And their simple point was that even this great Old Testament prophet died. He was mortal in nature. So how could Jesus claim to be greater or know anything more than him? How could Jesus claim to say that if anyone keeps his word, he'll never die? Not even Abraham could make a claim like that, and he died. 
And then he asked the $10 question. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Or I like how the New International Version translates it when it says, who do you think you are? I mean, that's the gist of what they're saying. They're ticked. They're mad about this. And Jesus has them right where he wants them. Look at what happens next in verses 54 and 55. It says, Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father, hang on to those two words, my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. These are fighting words, folks. I mean, he is not going to back down. He is going to get these stiff neck, digging their heels in type of religious leaders. Some of you have known people like that too. He's going to try to get them off center here. And notice that he does a couple of things here that, again, are leading us just steps away from the mountaintop. The first thing he does is he says, my father versus their God or our God. He is letting them know, don't miss this, that he has a very special relationship with God the Father, uniquely as God the Son, and that the best that they can call God the Father is our God. He says, I call him my Father. And again, he, he's taking them and us somewhere in, his, in, the, in our understanding of who he is. He's setting up an understanding here that he's going to declare in no uncertain terms in just a second. But before we get to that, he makes it very clear that he knows God and they don't. Four times in verse 55, he uses the word no three times to refer to how he knows the Father, one time to refer to how they don't. But they're still stuck on playing the Abraham card. So then Jesus goes for the jugular. Look at verse 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And now things are really heating up. I mean, Jesus is now insinuating, are you catching it here? That a guy who lived almost 2,000 years before Jesus' day, that's the span between Abraham and Jesus, saw Jesus' day and was glad about it. And this almost surely is referring to Genesis 12, verse 3, where Abraham is told by God that all nations on earth will eventually be blessed through him, and Jesus is saying that he is the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of that blessing. That he is the blessing that Abraham longed for and dreamed about all of his life. And the religious leaders are just about at their wits end right now, gang. They are totally befuddled by all of this. And so look at how they respond in verse 57. I love it. It says, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And the reason I say that they're befuddled and at their wit's end is that Jesus didn't say he saw Abraham. He said Abraham saw him. Have you ever been so mad that you can't even get the facts right on something that just happened two seconds ago? I mean, that's what's happening here. And again, Jesus is such a gentleman. I mean, he's so awesome because he could have said, look, you idiots, I didn't say that I saw Abraham. I said that he saw me. That's what I probably would have said. He doesn't say any of that. No, he, he's right now at the end of it, and he's saying, all right, you know what, enough bantering, enough back and forth. Let me just lay it out. Let me help you understand who I am and why I'm here and what all this is about. And look at what he does in verse 58. It says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly I say to you, 
Before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. And we're going to understand what he means by this in about three seconds. But let me just let you know how, how important these words are. Verse 59, the verse after this, will end the chapter. And it will end by saying, they picked up stones in order to kill him. There's something about what Jesus says here in verse 58 when he says, before Abraham was born, I am, that makes the Jews say, that's it. We now get it. We know what you're getting at. We know who, who you're saying you are, and you're going to die. And they're going to try to kill him from this point on, and eventually they do uh, in the Gospel of John. Uh, so, so what's happening here? Well, you got to understand the context of this whole discussion, which is why I've spent 15 minutes building up to this. And you have to understand a bit about the Old Testament. But once you do, it becomes clear why the Jews understood what Jesus is getting at here. Two things you need to know about verse 58 here. The first is that Jesus is claiming here to be preexistent to Abraham. I mean, that's pretty clear by the context here. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. That phrase, I am, in the original Greek that John was written in is the Greek phrase, ego emi, and it simply means, it's rightly translated, I am. The reason that's important you know that is because it is a present tense, continuous phrase. I am. I mean, if you walked into a room today and you said, I am here, somebody would get very clearly the fact that present tense right now you were here and you're going to continue to be here, at least for the short term. That's the way we use that phrase. That's exactly what Jesus was saying, that before Abraham was born, I am. I like how one Bible expert says it. He says this is a phrase denoting continuous existence. Someone who has no beginning, no end, but eternal existence. It's a phrase of pre-existence. He's saying before Abraham was even on this earth, I existed. And we're going to see in a minute how and why he existed. But the first thing you need to understand is that Jesus is claiming pre-existence to Abraham here. Now, this understanding alone, however, does not necessarily mean that Jesus is God. A lot of people will point to this and say, well, he's the great I am. He says that before Abraham existed, he was, so therefore he's God. Well, not necessarily, because even people who believe in reincarnation, think about it with me, could claim this, right? I mean, I don't believe in reincarnation. I hope you don't either, because the Bible talks nothing about it. But religions that do believe in reincarnation could make the claim that before Lincoln was, I am, right? Because that's what reincarnation argues. And I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. So there's a second thing that we need to understand about Jesus' words here that give us that last final step to the summit in our understanding of who he is. It's that last final step that caused the Jewish religious leaders to pick up the stones and say, that's it. And here it is. And that's that not only is Jesus claiming to be preexistent, he is claiming here a title that is reserved only for God. And the Jews knew it. You see, they knew when Jesus uttered those two words, I am, exactly what he was getting at. You know, it might seem weird to 21st century ears, but that phrase, I am, again in the Greek, ego and me, was actually not allowed, you'll like this, was not allowed to even be uttered in ordinary speech by the Jews in the first century. 
And you and I got to ask the question, well, why? I mean, why would they not be able to use a simple phrase like I am? And it's because it was a clear reference to Yahweh, to Jehovah, to God himself. And it goes all the way back to when Moses was confronted by God on the mountain in the early chapters of the book of Exodus. Many of you might remember the story. God is in the process of sending Moses to Pharaoh in order to, to release the Israelites from Egypt. And Moses is kind of nervous about all of this, so he asked God what he should say to the Israelites that might convince them that it is truly God who's telling Moses all this. It's a legitimate request. And here is God's answer in Exodus 3, verse 14. It says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus, you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am have sent you. Whoa. So God's saying, I am who I am. I mean, that's a, that's a phrase of ontology, that I am who I am. I am eternal existence. I am God. And then God bounces off that and says, so why don't you tell the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And so this little phrase, I am, ego, me" in the Greek, over the 1,500-year period from Moses' day to Jesus's would actually become a title for God. And because the Jews didn't speak the name of God except in very reverent circumstances, they couldn't say the phrase, I am, except in contexts of worship. In fact, we know for a fact that this phrase, I am, was used during the annual Feast of Tabernacles uh, for the Jews, and then a few other times during the Jewish worship year, but not much more than this. It was a holy and set-apart title for, for God, and Jesus is using it here in light of himself. Before Abraham was born, I am. He's talking about his pre-existence on an ontological level and then on a personal level, he's declaring a title for himself that was only reserved for God. And the Jews knew exactly what he meant by this. And here's what you and I learned from this. This is our main point today. And that is that Jesus then pre-existed from all eternity. And the reason that this is important is because the fact that he pre-existed from all eternity as the great I am means that he was God, that he is God, the second person of the Trinity come to us. He was God the Son come to this earth to bring us back to God the Father. And Jesus couldn't be more clear about all of this, gang, in the 12 verses here. I mean, let's add it all up. He begins by saying that he has the words that lead to eternal life. But wait a second, only God has it. Okay, yeah, so Jesus has the words that lead to eternal life. He then says he's greater than even the greatest prophet in all of the Old Testament, and that he comes from the Father and seeks only what the Father wants him to seek, and that the reason that all this is true is because he is the great I Am. He's basically telling them and us he's not just some other holy man spouting off some new religion. I mean, we've had enough of those. No, he's the pre-existent God of the universe, the maker and creator of all that we see and do, when not, do not see. Come here as God the Son to connect us eternally with the triune God. That's who Jesus is. That's why he came. And this is the excursus, the trail that John sees it very important that we go down today before we move on with any of these other traits. And so in our short time remaining today, I want to wrap up 
by noting three key implications for you and me today of Jesus's preexistence. Because this is important, you and I wrestle with it. If we ended right now, which we could, you'd say, nice theology lesson. <laughs> and it is a good theology lesson. I hope you could make this same flowful argument on what Jesus is getting at here with your friends and coworkers so that they can get to the mountaintop of Everest. But if we don't then help us and others understand what the implications are of this, then it's just a good theology lesson. So three things, and here's the first thing. The fact that Jesus preexisted means... He still exists now. And boy, does this one have teeth. The logic, when you think about it, gang, is irrefutable. Here's the logic. If Jesus is the one who preexisted Abraham, and that's what he's claiming here, and if this means that in his existence he is eternal in nature, and that's the only thing that it could mean, then it must mean by necessity that he still exists today. Because anybody that could exist before Abraham and anybody that exists eternally must still exist today, which means that Jesus is just as real today as he was when he walked this earth. See, you and I got to grab onto that because some of you weasel out of this in your life. You think, yeah, 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 I believe. But you know what? It would have been so much easier if I was on this earth when Jesus was here. And I could just see him and touch him and taste him and all that other stuff. And I said, I'm not sure you're right. I mean, just as many people doubted when Jesus was on this earth as do today. It still takes faith. It still takes trust. It still takes belief. And the reality is, is that he is saying, I'm eternal in nature and I still exist today. So wrestle with all that still today. I mean, to be sure, look at how Jesus would set this up for his future followers when he was leaving this earth at the tail end of his short 33 years on this earth. He says this. These are his very last words in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he's saying, even though I'm going up to heaven, I, I, I'm still with you. Because why? I'm eternal in nature. And then look at how he would go on to say it in the Gospel of John when his disciples were starting to freak out about his impending trial and crucifixion and what all that was going to mean. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Now, now how in the world could they see him? Well, it's simple. They see him, the Bible will go on to say, through faith. They see him through belief. They see him through trusting in him. That's what's going on here. And the reality is, is that when you and I take the faith that we have and we place it in Jesus Christ as the risen, resurrected, ascended to heaven Savior who still exists today, the Bible says that then we experience at times in our lives, what we call this special presence of God. The reality is, he says, I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I, I will be there for you. And the reality is, is that some of you who don't experience that even today, could it be that one, your faith is not really directed to Jesus? And two, could it be that you're not really trusting Jesus? 
But as I've suggested to you before, gang, it's so easy to trust yourself, your work, your 401k, your money, your house, your spouse, your kids, your culture, Hillary versus Donald. I mean, there are so many things that we trust, right? I mean, is that the argument right now? Is it Hillary or is it Donald? And the reality is, I, I go, I don't know. To me, it's Jesus. That's who it is for me. It's Jesus. That's the one that I am trusting. There's a great old prayer that was done by the Hasidic community, a Jewish community, uh, that goes like this. I love this prayer. It's in the Oxford Book of Prayer. It says, wherever I go, only you. Wherever I stand, only you. Just you, again you. Always you. You, you, you. When things are good, you. When things are bad, you. You, you, you. See, see, this is a group that was longing for a Messiah. This is a group that didn't even have yet that special presence of God that you and I have in Jesus. And their hope, their prayer was, God, you and your presence with me. That you and I have every reason to believe and trust that our risen Savior is with us. And as you believe it, he even says, I'm going to give you a taste of it that eventually you're going to have fully in heaven. But I'll give you a taste now. And so I love how Joni Erickson Tata, Johnny Erickson Tata said it uh, years ago. She's a quadriplegic, one of the greatest champions of the disability movement, a strong Christian uh, in her own right. And at one point in her writing, she said this. She says, you don't have to be alone in your hurt. Comfort is yours. Joy is an option. And it's all been made possible by your Savior. He went without comfort so that you might have it. He postponed joy so that you might share in it. He willingly chose isolation so that you will never have to be alone in your hurt and sorrow. You see, Jesus did go to his death, and he died a lonely death for you and for me, but he rose a victorious Savior. And he ascended into heaven, and he said, you are not alone. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will come to you. And the reason, the whole linchpin that you and I have this hope, gang, is because he is the preexistent one. He is the great I am. And because of that, our faith is not in vain. That's the first implication. Now, a second implication, we're going to kind of switch gears here, of Jesus' preexistence is this. And that is the fact that Jesus preexisted means he is who he said he is. Now, now what do I mean by that? One of the things that kind of drives me nuts in the way that you and I interface with the world around us with what we call apologetics, defending our faith, is that we get sucked into so many side, tra side trails. Have you ever noticed that? Oh my gosh, I mean, you try to talk to somebody about, about Jesus and Christianity, and before you know it, you're talking about creation versus evolution, uh, morality and the culture wars, uh, family values versus new values, social and political issues, uh, the church, whether it's filled with good people or bad people, uh, yeah, like both, uh, the, the religious history, you know, like the Crusades and all of that, whether the Bible's really the word of God, philosophical issues like uh, the nature of evil. I mean, have you been down this road before? Like so many side trails that we go down. And these are all good and fine discussions, but here's my point, and here's something we learned from this text here today. None of those discussions are the core of the arguments. Do, do we all understand that? Maybe you don't, because it looks like you don't. I'll explain. None of those are the core of the argument. In other words, the core of the argument is who is Jesus, the core of the argument is exactly who is this guy and why did he come to earth? And everything else is gravy. 
Everything else is one big excursus, <laughs> one big side trail. And I'm not saying they're bad side trails, and sometimes people can get to the main trail through the side trail, but me, I'd rather stay on the main trail. So here's how this works. I was with a, a dear friend of mine just a few months ago whom I've known for years, and, and he's a believer, but he's really, really, really hit on hard times. I mean, like close to agnosticism, hard times. And we were meeting to try to talk about uh, his faith or what's left of it. And, uh, and, and I got sucked into all these things, you know, like he's wrestling with, you know, creation versus evolution, and, you know, the church is full of hypocrites, and, you know, and, you know my answer to that one, right? You know, no, it's not full. We got room for one more. But anyways, I, <laughs> I uh, you know, the church is full of hypocrites, and I mean, I got answers to all these issues, by the way, you know, the problem of evil, and the crusades, and all this, and, and, and again, after about an hour of this, and, I, and it was going nowhere, I finally said this to him, and I've done this a lot before, I said, look... Here's what we're going to do, because we've got about half an hour left. I said, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to give you all of it. I'm going to give you all of it. For this moment, because I'll come back to it, but for this moment, I, I, I'm going to give you your, your, you win on all that stuff. Evolution's correct. <laughs> uh, Hillary's the best candidate. Um, you know, I'm, I know some of you, that's like, yeah, I'm going to give you all of it right now. And I said, and as I give it you all of it, I want to do just one thing. I want us to spend the rest of our time talking about Jesus. You know what my friend said to me? He said, I don't want to do that. Now, now that surprised me a little bit. That, that, it doesn't usually work that way. And, uh, and, and the reason is, though, is that my friend was pretty smart. And, and, and he knew something about where that was going to go that, that we learned from Patricia Heaton. Look at what Patricia Heaton says, that actress from Everybody Loves Raymond, who's a, a conservative Catholic. She says, I think Jesus is a scary subject. God, you can make into anything you want. But confronted with Jesus, you have to say, I believe that or I don't. It's very powerful. And, and see, my friend knew that. <laughs> you see, he knew that if we could establish who Jesus is, as the great I am, and here's what I need you guys to see, all that other stuff will fall into place. I mean, honestly, some of you are really worried about your kids. Just get your kids to fall in love with Jesus again, and I promise you, they might not live all the lifestyle stuff you live because you're really boring, but the reality is, is that they will start to make choices based on the word of God. Because the reality is, is that they fall in love with Jesus, if they have a right understanding of him, they're going to start to believe the Bible again. They're going to start to believe what God says. They're going to start to want to live a life of righteousness. And that's how it works. And by the way, some of you are saying, well, I don't know if that'll happen. I don't know. Well, if it doesn't happen that way, then they're still messed up. Amen? I mean, what if they just start agreeing with you in all your lifestyles and values, but don't believe in Jesus? Wouldn't that just be wonderful? No. That'd be awful. Because they believe everything you said, and they're still going to go to hell. You don't want that one. No, you want them to go to heaven and then from their right understanding of Jesus and going to heaven, everything else will fall into place. Does this make sense to you guys? It does to me. And the reality is, is that we need to help people understand that, that the reason that Jesus can declare that he's the great I am means that everything he says about himself then is true. This was C.S. Lewis's great argument, gang. Lewis argued that if you could just convince people of a rudimentary understanding of Jesus, like dominoes falling, the rest of the stuff's all going to fall into place. 
And I find, to be sure, and I don't want to bore you with this, but be sure, it was true that way for me. Was that true for you? I was with some friends just the other day, and we were talking about how well, when we accepted Christ, how little we knew about him. I mean, I don't know about you. I didn't grow up in Sunday school. So when I accepted Jesus, all I knew, and it was very real, all I knew is that he was enough to save my pathetic soul. But I couldn't have explained to you the intricacies of substitutionary atonement. I, I couldn't have explained to you the Trinity. I didn't know anything about it. As I've said to you guys before, I, I couldn't explain anything about the Bible. I assumed Jesus wrote the whole Bible. I was shocked to find out there were guys like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul. And I was like, who are these guys? You know, I mean, I, I, it's Jesus I came to, not them. I mean, it was amazing how little I knew about Jesus. But on March 11th, 1981, when I accepted Jesus, I was in love with him. And he saved my soul and forgave me of my sin. And over the next few years, the understanding and all those other issues started to fall into place. And that's precisely how it's to work. So why in the world then, when we're trying to help people have that same experience, do we spend all this time on the side trails? If he is preexistent, if he is the great I am, then let's help people understand that. Because by understanding that, all else will fall into place. And then a third implication of this, because we're just about out of time, he still exists now. He is who he said he is. And then thirdly, and this one is the most intimate, is that because Jesus preexisted, it means you can exist forever with him. You know, the reason I end on this note here is because this is really the point of this passage. As many of you know, I'm a purist when I teach and understand the Bible. By purist, I mean we have to really stay close to the text and what, what the Bible means when it says what it says. And when you look closely here at these verses here in verses 48 through 59, uh, what you can't miss is that Jesus really has one main reason for telling us he's the great I am. Let me remind you of it. Look again at verse 51. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And then he goes on to lead us to the mountaintop of the fact that he is the great I am. But this is his main reason for telling us this, so that we might be willing to be those who keep his word, who believe and trust in him, who become followers of him, and ergo, as a result of that, have the hope that we will never see death. And what he means by that is that even when your body stops working, that's not the end, <laughs> that you'll spend eternity with him. I want to close with this. You know, when I uh, do funerals, and I do quite a few of them, I'm a pastor, I almost always use a favorite quote of mine from Billy Graham. Billy Graham I never saw as a very funny man, but he once said something that I thought was actually kind of humorous. He, he once said that death is the most democratic experience in life because we're all going to get a chance to participate. <laughs> well, I thought it was funnier than some of you guys did, but I, I, I think that's a really funny phrase. Because you think about it, and I, and I know no one likes, to, the reason you didn't laugh is because nobody likes to think about their own death, right? I mean, I, I don't sit around thinking about that, but, you know, the older you get, the more you start to think about it. And, and the reality is, is that Christians should be the least afraid of death out of anybody on planet Earth. And yet I find sometimes Christians seem to be the most afraid. And I, and I have a psychological reason for that. We are high-control people who are rather anxious. And so the reality is, is, that, is that we tend to be that way. But, but we need to work on that part of our soul. Because the reality is, is that if Jesus is the great I am, you have nothing to fear in death.
And I can't say that strongly enough to you. You have nothing to fear. My friend Tom Schrader <laughs> brags that he does the best funeral in Phoenix. And I, I always think that's funny. I always say, Tom, why, why would you, one, why would you brag about that? But two, what do you mean by that? And Tom said, the reason I do the best funeral in Phoenix is because I, I stand up there at every funeral I do and, and, and I say about the person who has died, I am so jealous of him or her. I'm so jealous because they get to go be with Jesus and I have to be stuck in this dump. That's what Schrader would say. And, and guys, whether you like that phraseology or not, here's the deal. That is really good theology. I mean, that's the way Christians need to think. I, I, I mean, do you guys realize that, that, that on heaven's worst day, it will make Scottsdale's best day look like crud? I mean, do we all understand that? This is not our father's world. This is, world's been t turned over to Satan. This is not our home. And many of us get so stinking comfortable here that it just drives me bonkers. And again, it's really easy to do that, but, but guard your soul from that. I'm not saying don't enjoy life. I think you should. But please understand that you were made for eternity. And the fact that Jesus is the great I am means that as you believe and trust in him, you're gonna spend eternity with him. And, and I love this image, that this life is like one grain of sand on the beach of eternity. This 80 years, 90 years, whatever it will be for you is so short compared to what it will be with him for all of eternity. And that is all tied to the fact that he is the great I am. In a few weeks, a couple weeks, we're gonna uh, have an altar call here at our church. We're gonna give those of you who are staying with us in this series a, a chance to formally respond to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Um, but I, I, today's a good day, too, to have that kind of response. So as I close in prayer, uh, what I'd like you to do is all bow, and, and then let me speak to those of you who might be ready to receive Christ. So let's all bow right now as we close in prayer. Father, um, if I don't miss my guess, there might be some of us here today that for the very, very first time have what we might call a clear understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, God, there's lots of things that people say today about Jesus. We see PBS specials and History Channel specials and all these things, and yet, Lord, really the only document we should trust, as you know, is what you've written in your holy word. And so, God, we've seen today with absolute clarity that he is the preexistent one. He is God come to this earth as God the Son to bring us to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we also know that the main requirement, really the only requirement that he then asks to incorporate this into our lives is to believe, to believe and place our trust and faith in Jesus. So, Lord, right where some of these people sit here in a chapel and venue and Cactus and Mountain Valley, God, they believe and trust in you. Lord, there might be some here today who need to place their faith in you. And right now where they sit, they place their faith and trust in you and say, I believe and I trust. And God, as they do that in their heart of hearts, as they breathe that simple prayer of belief and trust in Christ and his atoning work for them, God, give them that initial burst of fruit and joy that you are theirs and that they are yours and that nothing now can snatch them out of your hand. May they mark this day as the day of their salvation. And Lord, for the rest of us who can at times get so beaten down in life, even placid in our faith, God, may today be a very living, vivid reminder of the Jesus that we serve and that greater is he who is in us than anyone or he who is in this world. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're the great I am. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy 
and precious name. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.